Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Equinor's answer is one kilometre below the seabed. We're planning to capture CO2 emissions and safely store them under the sea. Visit equinor.co.uk. Stockport, said the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, sees itself these days as the Brooklyn to Manchester's Manhattan. And if you'd have grown up on the outskirts of Stockport in the mid-1990s, you'd have laughed your head off at that as well. The Stockport I remember did not exactly have New York's culinary scene, unless you count multiple branches of Greg's the Baker's as a scene. I don't know. Good sausage rolls, anyway. It had two nightclubs that I can remember. The Bamboo in Hazel Grove, which has been there since 1961, and Coco Savannas in the town centre, which sounds exotic, but was mainly just, well, dangerous. And whatever your taste in music, Studio 54 and the Paradise Garage, they were not. There were no trendy dive bars, though plenty of untrendy dive pubs. There was no river bridge to rival Brooklyn's either, though Stockport does have some decent motorway flyovers and a truly excellent viaduct. And while there are no towering skyscrapers, we were treated to one surreal 120-foot glass pyramid on the edge of town, which the co-op bank used as office space after the developer went bust. Anyway, we all like to take the piss out of our hometowns, don't we? It's kind of a national pastime. When I worked in Worcester for the local evening paper there, there were endless jokes about floods and living underwater. When I worked at the Boston Standard in Lincolnshire, the locals there had for 500 years been referring to their famous parish church tower, the tallest in England and visible for miles around, as the stump. But towns and the way we think about them have of late become one of the hottest political topics in Westminster. A narrative has taken hold that too many towns have been, quote-unquote, left behind over recent years, as Britain's metropolitan areas motored away into the distance. Indeed, this supposed phenomenon of left-behind towns has pretty much become the received wisdom in Westminster, accepted on all sides of the house and repeated by MPs ad nauseum. And the government has, eventually, leapt into action. Rhetorically, at least. People want to be able to look around their towns and villages and say, yes, our community, this place, is better off than it was five years ago. For too long, our funding approach has been complex and ineffective. And I want to change that. Today, I'm announcing a new levelling-up fund worth £4 billion. Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson have between them conjured up a multi-billion pound towns fund to throw money at what they would maybe rightly describe as deprived areas, but which to the rest of us also looks suspiciously like a map of Tory marginal seats. But will it actually help? And is it even right to say that our towns got left behind? Like, did successive governments genuinely forget about the whole of provincial England for decades? Or is this yet more simplistic claptrap from a Westminster system which essentially divides the country into two camps, London and not London, and applies its policies accordingly? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're asking how, and if, our towns got left behind. 
and whether there's anything that any government can do to turn their fortunes around. If we're going to talk about left-behind towns, then really, there's only one place to start. Eighty-five years ago, it was George Orwell who wrote with such brutal elegance about Wigan and the dilapidated road to what locals laughingly referred to as Wigan Pier. In modern-day Westminster, however, Wigan has a new prophet, a young MP who for some time now has been noisily and passionately banging the drum for the town and for many others like it around the country. Places like Wigan aren't places with great problems to be solved. They're places with great potential to be realised. Geographically, we sit in a fantastic bit of the country, but we need a proper settlement nationally that allows us the power to invest sums of money in our creaking local infrastructure in order to attract more of that investment and to invest in our young people as well. We haven't had that for decades and it's about time it changed. This, obviously, is Lisa Nandy, who's been MP for Wigan since 2010. She ran unsuccessfully for the Labour leadership last year and now sits in Keir Starmer's top team as Shadow Foreign Secretary. But even as she tries valiantly to focus on diplomacy and global security and whatnot, we all know her heart belongs in towns. A group of us who'd been thinking and talking about the situation in our towns for some time got so frustrated after the EU referendum, we'd pointed out that there'd been this huge divide that was exposed by the referendum result where many people in cities had voted in large numbers to remain and many people in surrounding towns right across the country in every region and nation had voted to leave. And as a consequence, a lot of the established national media, the think tank world and elected politicians started to talk about our towns as these left behind wastelands where people had so little left to lose that they did the unthinkable and voted to leave the EU. And we just got incredibly frustrated by that because... It's such a mischaracterization of what's happened in our towns over the last 40 years. People felt very strongly that they wanted the political settlement to start delivering for them again. And there's no question in my mind that the vote to leave the EU was prompted partly by that. But it wasn't a cry for help from people who have nothing. It was the last line of defence for many people for the things that really matter to them, that they value in their towns and they want to see protected and when good jobs have been disappearing for 40 years when young people have to get out in order to get on and when the politicians that they've turned to for help have just shrugged their shoulders and said well this is what progress looks like get on board or get out of the way no wonder people are angry a few years ago nandy teamed up with academics and data experts to form the center for towns a low budget but high impact think tank which tried to analyse the root cause of the small-town anger she describes. Their work contrasts the jaw-dropping transformation of Britain's biggest city centres over the past 30 years with the run-down and boarded-up high streets of too many provincial towns. Jobs is very much at the root of all of this because 
you know, if you look back 40 years to 1979, the year that I was born, you look at most of the major cities and the surrounding towns and young people were often leaving the cities in order to find work in those towns. We had mines, mills, factories, steelworks right across the country and they were often based outside of those major cities. Over the course of the last 40 years we've seen a complete reversal of that. At the Centre for Towns we did a report a few years ago that looked at the amount of foreign direct investment that used to go into towns and cities. In 1979, only a third of foreign direct investment went into core cities. By 2019, that was 70% of all foreign direct investment going into core cities, mainly London, but other cities besides. The reason for this is that we've seen not just those industries disappearing or being downgraded, we've also seen investment that does come going into the major cities as a deliberate attempt to try to stimulate regional economies. The hope was under the last Labour government and under George Osborne and David Cameron that that investment, that infrastructure, that opportunity would trickle out from the big cities and benefit everybody. That's a model that has demonstrably failed and we need a different settlement that invests in the transport, the digital infrastructure, the skills of people in towns across this country in order to get those good jobs back into the places that they belong. Is there an argument that, given the state of our big inner cities in the 80s, that successive governments were actually right to focus there first because they were in such a mess? I'm not angry at all about the the efforts that the last Labour government made and some leading figures like Michael Heseltine in the Conservative Party who wanted to see investment going back into the regions and they looked to major cities as did the European Union and it was a game changer for those cities. I grew up in Manchester, you know, you walk through the town centre in Manchester, you walk along the waterfront in Liverpool, you do the same on the quayside in Newcastle and the transformation has been extraordinary and life-changing and game-changing for those cities. But the problem is that we thought, they thought, that rising tide would float all boats and it quite clearly haven't. While cities have pulled further and further ahead, towns have fallen further and further behind and it doesn't just cost us jobs and spending power, it means that because the spending power isn't there, the basis of a community life is being eroded. The scars are visible on our high streets where the shops are no longer viable Young people getting out to get on means families are broken apart. Older people are growing old, hundreds of miles away from children and grandchildren. And there's a crisis of loneliness across the country. This doesn't just have economic consequences. It might have an economic cause, but the social consequences are profound. That's why people are angry. That's why we need proper concentrated attention to try to reverse the trends of the last 40 years. And while the government so far has talked about levelling up, we've seen absolutely nothing on the ground that will actually act as the sort of game changer that we saw in the 1990s, late 1990s from the last Labour government that did the same for our cities. What's it done to civic pride in somewhere like Wigan? Obviously the high street in some of these towns is not what it used to be. How do people feel about that? I think people feel almost a sense of bereavement about the place that they love and what has been allowed to happen to it. Sometimes it manifests as anger. Certainly I've heard that a lot over the last 11 years since I've been our town's MP. 
but it's also a, just a sense behind that that people feel that something that matters so deeply to them that they care about the future of their own community the ability of their kids to stay and contribute to a place that has meant everything to them that their identity is bound up with has been neglected by politicians and i think it's part of what has fueled this growing cleavage between politics and the people where people look to politics for answers to those things in their lives they look to us to protect them to defend them to support them and we've done none of that at, at best we've ignored them at worst we've taken decisions that have driven a coach and horses through the things that matter most to people and provide the basis of a decent life clearly the phenomenon nandy describes is not unique to wigan Last year, the Financial Times journalist Sebastian Payne embarked on a tour of some of the northern constituencies which Labour lost to the Conservatives at the last general election, the so-called Red Wall. It's striking that almost every place he writes about in his resulting book, Broken Heartlands, is a small or medium-sized town. Well, I grew up in a town, Gateshead, opposite the city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And so when I started the book journey, I was very much aware of where my background was coming from, which is the town versus city mentality, which is normally one of resentment that I spent my whole childhood with people saying how awful the people in Newcastle were, even though they were just 15 minutes drive away across the River Tyne. And I think that plays into its politics, but it's a much more fundamental thing that the economic structure of most of England's town doesn't really make sense in this day and age. And it's the same across all these places that voted Conservative in the general election, the, the Wakefield to the Leeds, the Burnley to the Manchester. These places had a big purpose. They had very strong communities and now they don't have that. And they've suffered from deindustrialization, from economic decline and also a politics that hasn't really spoken to them for decades. So are you saying that some of those sort of long-term trends of, of economic decline have been more pronounced in towns than they have in our big cities? Absolutely, because many of these towns had strong industrial bases. If you think of Wakefield, it was textile mills. In Gateshead, where I brought up, it was railway carriage building. When they declined, the economic purpose for these places disappeared. And over the past couple of decades, cities have become the economic units that make sense, that can draw the talent, for people to work there, who want to live nearby them. And for these towns, they've been just left either as commuter belts, where you can live and it's a bit cheaper to go and work in a city or they've simply just gone into sort of managed decline and I've spent a lot of time on the high streets of England's towns and the fact is a lot of them don't really add up because people don't want to go there for shopping destinations. They'd rather go online or go to a city. Uh, they've struggled in terms of their entertainment offering, be it pubs or cafes or whatever. So they've got themselves in this very weird space. You obviously spent a lot of time just talking to people in some of these places, Grimsby and uh, Doncaster and so on. Did you get a general sense of how people living there felt about the decline of the high street and of the local economy that you've just described? Nearly everybody I spoke to, particularly first time conservative pro-Brexit voters, felt that they'd lost civic pride, that it's not just the economies that have dried up, the shops that have closed down, the lack of good places to go and have fun. It's that 
sense of purpose that these towns had very proud heritages. And if you look at some of the beautiful buildings, be it cinemas, post offices, town halls, they're all now in a pretty shoddy state. Blythe in Northumberland, for example, used to have three cinemas at one point. They're all gone now. And the only cinema it has is now a giant Weatherspoons with Jaeger bombs lining what used to be the cinema screen. And I actually think it's a wonderful thing to see this beautiful Art Deco building have a new purpose. But if you think of living in Blythe, if you want to go to the cinema, you have to leave there. In my book, I talked about what I called collectivised communities, which is where people lived, worked and socialised in one place. So in Blythe Valley, if you worked in Bates' Pit like Ian Lavery and Ronnie Campbell, the former Labour MPs did, your whole life was in Blythe, that you walked to the end of the street to go to the pit, you walked to the pub nearby, you walked to the working men's club and if you were really stretching it to go on holiday, you'd get on a bus and go down the northeastern coast to say Tynemouth, but there was no reason or appetite to leave because everything you needed and wanted was in your town and the fact that that's now gone lives a sort of soullessness that has replaced it. The politics of all this is fascinating. As we all know, and as Payne's book charts in careful detail, many of these towns have recently swung away from the Labour Party after decades of unwavering support. Much of this swing occurred en masse in the 2019 election, handing Boris Johnson the landslide victory he craved. But while 2019 felt like a one-off event, driven perhaps by Brexit or the unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn, the chipping away of Labour's red wall had in fact been happening for years, through quietly shrinking majorities and growing murmurs of unrest. The first blue brick actually appeared in 2017, when a 27-year-old Tory councillor called Ben Bradley bucked the national trend and pinched the former East Midlands mining town of Mansfield from Labour. Mansfield had never before elected a Conservative MP in the 132 years since the seat was first formed. Had he really thought beforehand that he stood a chance? To be honest, yeah, we did. I mean, I think we were the only people who did. And nobody else really believed us. But we'd seen, I mean, I'd stood for election in Hucknall, which is very nearby, and we'd turned Labour council seats Conservative there in the kind of previous years. So we saw the sense of direction really in the swing. And to be honest, if you look back, even from 97, you know, Mansfield has, has the Labour majority has come down and down and down over 20 years. It's not just a recent thing, although clearly Brexit and, and Corbyn accelerated it. What were the dynamics that you assessed have made that happen? You obviously know the area very well. Why do you think we've seen that trend? Well, I think over time, the Labour Party have moved away from their historic kind of roots and being the party of working people and all of that. For all the history of voting Labour, you don't find many socialists, quite frankly, in Mansfield. Most people, you know, working class, former miners, if you have a chat to them, their views, their kind of principles are broadly, you know, small C conservative, certainly socially conservative. So really, I think historically, that Labour voting thing was almost cult-like. You know, everybody here votes Labour. You've got heavily unionised industries. All my friends vote Labour. Uh, and it was more about that and that sense of community than it was about policy. And that's just drifted away over many years since probably 97. It came down 18,000, 11, 8, 6, and then Conservative. And I think that was accelerated probably by uh, Labour's stance on Brexit because Mansfield was, you know, very, very high leave voting constituency. And then Corbyn, because as I say, there weren't, there aren't many socialists, frankly, though it's been Labour for a long time. They didn't believe in that. And we had that message of, you know, supporting places that have been left behind and Mansfield very much has. 
And just tell us a little bit about that. You say it's a place that's been left behind. Just tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, well, ever since uh, so the, those unionised industries were the reason people voted Labour, clearly they don't exist anymore, whether they were pits or, or manufacturing over the course of two or three decades through the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, those things disappeared and those communities kind of disappeared a little bit. And they've not really been replaced by anything obvious. We've got, uh, you know, a lot of public sector health kind of roles. We've got lots of very small companies. I think it's 85% micro businesses, like less than 10 employees in Mansfield. But you've not got a big kind of obvious career path or community hub in the way that you had in the pits and those big manufacturing industries. It's never really been replaced, either with infrastructure or with obvious new well-paid jobs. So we've been left behind from that point of view. Challenge now, I suppose, is we've promised lots of things in terms of sorting that out uh, with investment and infrastructure. And we've got to deliver that because, you know, I don't believe for a second that these guys have have immediately become died in the world Tories. We've got a point to prove. Did people used to blame the Tories for the losses of those historic industries? I think some previous generations did. I get a bit of that. And there are some very strong and emotive kind of politics around Mansfield as you can imagine there are some people who absolutely vociferously hate the Tories for that reason uh, and you're never going to change their mind but I think as that's become uh, or moved further into the past as those kind of union connections and those industries have kind of become a memory rather than a reality for people you know newer generations don't really feel that way and you know I think people have just moved on frankly. So that's the current status of our so-called left behind towns but how did we get here? And what can we actually do to redress the balance? Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Our answer is one kilometre below the seabed. At Equinor, we're planning to use carbon capture and storage to help decarbonise the north of England. Carbon emissions from the Humber and Teesside regions will be safely stored one kilometre below the North Sea. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. Much of the conversation around left-behind towns here in Westminster tends to focus on infrastructure. It's the crappy transport links, the crumbling office blocks, the lack of investment in the high street. And to be clear, there's good reason for that. Here's Lisa Nandy on the all-important but rarely mentioned topic of buses. So in Greater Manchester, we've got a chronic problem with our buses, just like everywhere else apart from London. We know that can be changed because we've seen it happen in London, but it relies on two things. It relies on local leadership, and we're starting to see that in Greater Manchester with the moves from the mayor to re-regulate the buses, but it also relies on investment It just cannot be right that it's more expensive in my constituency often to get a bus than it is a taxi. Those buses are old, they're unreliable, and that's where most people are. I don't think there's a greater symbol of how disconnected politics and politicians have become from the British people than the fact that we talk so little about something that matters to so many people. Politicians might not travel very often on buses, but the public do. A couple of days ago, I took my car in for an MOT. And like a lot of people in Wigan, I have a car because the public transport is so unreliable. The garage is two miles down the road. And when I dropped the car off, I went to get the bus home It's three buses from the garage back to my house. And the wait for the first bus was 38 minutes. So I walked. That's just 
a ridiculous carry-on in the 21st century. And I think for a lot of people in London, they just wouldn't quite believe that that could be the case. This, of course, is 1,000% true. In pretty much every town I've ever lived in outside London, the bus service has been a joke and a really expensive one. When I worked for the Worcester Evening News, my other half worked at a library in the next town. The bus fare to and from work cost her her first hour's pay every day. Goodness knows it would have made a difference to us if the buses were a little cheaper, and indeed a lot more frequent. But what if there's another important divide between town and city, which isn't about physical infrastructure or public services at all? What about the people who live there? A bit of research the Centre for Towns did really early on was it looked at the changing age structure of populations of towns and cities since the 1980s. This is Will Jennings, Professor of Political Science at the University of Southampton and a co-founder of the Centre for Towns think tank. The striking thing was that in a population that is ageing, that the UK's population is getting older thanks to advances in science and medicine, towns, villages are getting older and older, but cities are actually getting younger against the tide. And so what we're seeing is a divide in demographics. It's driving both the political divides that we're seeing at the moment. As those towns get older, more socially conservative voters, um, cities get younger, more social liberal, younger, more diverse populations. That drives geographical polarisation. An obvious political event that highlighted this growing divide between cities and towns was the Brexit referendum, where large cities tended to vote Remain, whereas smaller towns, more peripheral rural areas, coastal towns, voted heavily to leave the EU and that I think for many people was the first time at which they realised that the geography of the UK was really dividing us in terms of political values and so we see on whether it's on questions about immigration about um, same-sex marriage geographical divides that reflect partly the demographics of those places that towns tend to have older populations they tend to be less diverse they tend to have fewer graduates and people with those sorts of characteristics tend to hold more socially conservative attitudes than younger more diverse populations of cities who are more socially liberal in their outlook and so both in 2016 in the Brexit referendum also the 2017 election we saw these different parts of the country heading off in different directions. For Will Jennings It's these changing demographics and the accompanying societal shifts that are behind the Labour Party's decline in many towns. I think it's often forgotten just how important the social role played by large employers in smaller towns was by large factories, large coal mines, other local manufacturers in providing uh, the heart of social life. They ran sports clubs, there were working man's clubs attached. There was a whole infrastructure of communities focused on the employer and the surrounding community. And I think what's really changed about labour politics in the 21st century is the dominance of a single employer or a small number of employers in a town has gone and the associated community, social institutions around that has dissipated. And I think that's why it makes much more difficult for social democratic parties today to mobilise people to the cause of the labour movement. The big demographic shifts described by Will Jennings have not just redrawn the political landscape of our towns and cities. They've also created economic winners and losers between different towns around the country. Indeed, it often seems forgotten that when we're having this debate, 
There are obviously plenty of towns, Altrincham in the northwest, say, or Guildford in the southeast, which are actually very affluent and don't feel terribly left behind at all. I think if you look at the data, there are some towns that are doing fantastically well. You know, if they have large numbers of graduates or highly skilled people, you know, who are in jobs, they'll be doing very well. This is Henry Overman, Professor of Economic Geography at the London School of Economics. And there are some towns that are really struggling if they have people, you know, who struggle in the labour market who maybe aren't employed. And then the same thing is true of many neighbourhoods within our bigger cities. So it would be true of communities in the east end of London or in poorer parts of Manchester. And then if we zoom down another level to sort of villages, the same will be true there. There'll be some villages that are incredibly prosperous and doing very, very well. And there will be some villages that are really struggling. So I I think that just saying, you know, we've got a town's problem is a simplification that just isn't very helpful. For Professor Overman, the idea politicians have been far too focused on metropolitan areas does not hold water either. I think that the economy went there and politicians to some extent followed. Part of the turnaround of London was driven by big decisions that we made about, you know, having a financial sector or, you know, other decisions that we made at the macro level. But fundamentally, I think it's just that as our economy has moved towards certain kind of services, those services tend to do well in our bigger cities. And so they've concentrated there. High-skilled workers have tended to follow them. Graduates have tended to follow them. So we've ended up with the most productive firms and the most productive people in the same place, all working quite well. And the politicians have followed that. So, of course, you know, London's success does depend on the investment that has been made in the underground, you know, and other infrastructure associated with it. It's helped in Manchester or Leeds if, you know, if we've done infrastructure investments that build on that success. But I think the economics drove that and the structural shifts we've seen in the British economy. And then the politics and policy has sort of followed that to some extent by, you know, investing in and making other decisions that have then benefited those places. But as the political landscape of our towns and cities has changed, there can be no doubt that the government's focus has shifted with it. It's Labour-run Transport for London which is now warning of managed decline. It was Labour voting Leeds and Bradford which arguably suffered most in this week's downgraded rail investment package. Suddenly, advocates for Britain's largest metropolitan areas find themselves fighting a rearguard action as they call for further investment in our biggest cities. So there's definitely been a renaissance in the feel and the performance of our large city centres. Manchester over the last 30 years has gone through a quite radical change, Birmingham the same, and then it's Sheffield, Newcastle, etc. as well. This is Paul Sweeney, Director of Policy at the Centre for Cities Think Tank, which advocates for further investment in metropolitan areas. And I think that's probably where a lot of the tensions come from thinking about the cities and towns debate and that people look to these city centres, you know, with their shiny glass towers now and see that there's prosperity there. But I think the challenge is twofold. One is that, yes, the city centre has turned around, but actually there are large areas of deprivation just outside of these city centres. You know, take a walk out of Liverpool city centre or take a walk out of Birmingham city centre and you find yourself in some struggling areas, you know, not very far from walking out of that city centre. And the second challenge is that if you look at a a Manchester or Birmingham, their economies now of the city centre are now really, really successful. 
in their own right. But the problem is that they're just too small. And so the issue is that, yes, they've turned around, but because they're not of any particular size, they're not them generating prosperity for the wider Birmingham area or the wider Manchester area, or indeed for the towns and villages that are based around Greater Manchester or just outside of the West Midlands too. So yes, renaissance in terms of city centres, but actually there's a long way still to go. They're just on a journey. You know, where we are now is much better than where we were in the late 80s, but actually in the 2030s, we need to be forming even better if we're going to be creating the prosperity that we need to be supporting people who live around the city and not just within it. Someone who's completely new to this whole issue might walk around Manchester City Centre and then go walk around some of the town centres around Manchester and go, well, it's pretty clear where the government need to be investing here now. This is all nice and shiny and new and a lot of these areas are run down and clearly need the money. So therefore, it's time we started focusing most of the investment in those more dilapidated towns around the edges. What would you say to that? This is exactly where the political challenge is and where the political tension is. Clearly, when you look around and you see those experiences, it feels very natural that actually the investment should flow straight to the, the places that are struggling. But the issue is, how do we go about actually trying to solve the problem that we're presented with? Is that through spending more money on making a high street look nicer in a surrounding town, when actually fundamentally the demand is too low? So you can spend all that money, but it'll make no difference. Or do you go and spend it in your best bet to try and generate prosperity, which then spreads out to the broader area? Now, of course, if you go to the voter and say, do you know what we're going to do? In order to help your local place, we're going to go and spend money 15 miles down the road. They're going to look at you and think that you've got horns coming out of your head. But I think the reality is, is that there has to be a balance of the two, which part of the answer is going to be about trying to make Manchester City Centre more prosperous. And then at the same time, making investments locally that have an impact in terms of quality of public services, uh, skill levels of local residents, you know, and then things that you can do around the high street. So actually you're trying to make this place nicer while also supporting the prosperity generating engine, which is Manchester City Centre, which massively underperforms currently and is a big reason why we see that a lot of places around Greater Manchester don't do so well. But the flip side of that, clearly not everywhere around Greater Manchester is struggling. If you look at Altingham, for example, which is the place that people hold up as an example of town centre regeneration, That place is doing very, very well. Now, in part, it's doing well because it's quite an affluent area and that affluence is underpinned by the high-skilled jobs in Manchester City Centre that people commute into. I asked Professor Oveman of the London School of Economics why he thinks certain towns perform so much better than others and what we can actually do about it. When you get down to the town level, one of two things determine really how that town is going to do. So some of it is just idiosyncratic. So what I mean by that is... You know, certain towns have a big park that people like to visit. You can think of places in Cornwall that do very well by having beautiful seaside that people want to visit or they want to buy second homes. So that's sort of the idiosyncratic side. And then you can think of things to do with manufacturing. You know, they happen to, you know, have a particular large manufacturing firm there or whatever, you know, something very specific. So that's one side of what drives success towns. The other thing, which is much more general, it's to do with the kind of people who decide to live there and how well they're going to do in the labour market. So what happens in areas of Manchester or London or Leeds is that graduates and higher skilled workers tend to concentrate particular towns and suburbs. And then those particular towns and suburbs look like they're doing very well. And then you get other towns and suburbs which are home to people that, you know, are just going to struggle wherever they are. So I think it's much more to do with the kind of people that live in these places and the fact that they're going to struggle 
that explains you know why they're doing than some sort of failure of spatial policy to sort of spread jobs out to these places. It's hard to imagine that line going down well in Wigan. So which policy solutions does he think would revitalise these so-called left-behind towns? Well, the trouble is that I think the economics clash with the politics here. So if I was trying to develop an economic strategy, it would roughly come in three parts. Part one of it would be, let's try and get a couple of the bigger cities outside London and the South East functioning really well. Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Newcastle, I pick those four, but you know, they're doing relatively well compared to their region. Serious economic investments there to try and drive growth in those areas. Part two says, let's make sure that people can access those opportunities that we're generating. And their access is taken far too often to be, oh, we need to build a road, we need to build a railway. Plenty of those places in GM have got good transport connections to the centre of Manchester the barrier there is that the people that live there can't access the jobs right so a lot of it is about investing in education and skills and dealing with mental health problems or other physical health problems that would allow those people to access those jobs and then there is a non-economic strand to it that says look in, in quite a lot of these communities and in communities that are further afield Tackling the economic side is going to be really difficult, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't provide them with adequate public goods and services. So we should care about whether or not they can access their GP. If they're in a rural area, we should care whether or not they have access to a good bus service or good broadband. For me, very weak economic arguments are doing this. I mean, the economic benefits of that are are a side benefit. But it's really important if you're living in some rural area, you don't have access to a car to be able to access your closest town. It's actually really important to be able to access broadband, to access a range of government services, but much more prosaically to be able to watch Amazon and Netflix, which are fairly important to people, you know, as part of their entertainment, things that they do in the evening. So for me, it's a three part strategy. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is that if you're a constituency based politician, you know, that strategy requires big capital investment in Manchester to try and lift up the broader region. And, you know, we see, you know, the politics of that, you know, as soon as the government announced some of those infrastructure investments and straight away you have people jumping up and down saying, oh, but what about all these left behind towns that we haven't given any of this infrastructure investment to at all? And that creates a real problem for constituency based MPs who then see money being spent elsewhere that is then going to try and lift them up. When I put that point to Lisa Nandy, she said, well, that's because it doesn't work, Jack. Just come to Wigan. We've been investing in Manchester for 30 years and it looks great and my town hasn't seen any benefit. I I have some sympathy with that because we've probably tended to do the infrastructure investment without doing those other associated investments that I really think are important. You know, we're still failing too many of our kids coming through schools, you know, do really badly. We're still failing too many people on adult education. We still have serious mental and physical health problems that we're not tackling. I mean, we've had 10 years of austerity and cuts to the kind of expenditure that would be needed to tackle those problems. I don't think, though, that you suddenly flip it and say, well, actually, what's going to turn around Wigan is, you know, more investment in a better railway or in new shiny office buildings for Wigan. I still think that we should try and keep as much of the focus as possible on uh, making sure that people in Wigan can access the opportunities that we are generating in Manchester. I mean, the reason alternative 
which says, oh, let's try and uh, get more high skilled people and graduates to move out to Wigan and to drive property prices up. And, you know, average incomes will go up. I don't understand what that does for the poorer constituents that we're trying to help. You know, it's almost statistical levelling up. I want to see us do stuff that really tries to help people at the bottom of the labour market and poorer households. And I, I think the strategy that I've just talked about does that. But it does need both parts. If you only do one part of it, you know, the infrastructure investment, you cut expenditure on social care and skills and education, you know, to the bone, then you're missing a crucial part of making sure that people can access the opportunities they're generating. Certainly, Lisa Nandy agrees that investing in the people who actually live in our towns is every bit as important as improving the infrastructure around them. I think you have to stop seeing physical infrastructure and people infrastructure as separate. Investing in our people is a core part of how you revitalise towns across this country. We've seen over the last 11 years, many of the things that were belatedly put in place, like the education maintenance allowance that was a game changer for young people in many towns across the country. In mine in Wigan, for example, it lifted the number of young people who were able to stay on at college and go on to university by 40% in just six years. These things really matter because when companies are making decisions about where to invest, they don't just look at transport and digital infrastructure as important as they are. They also look at the workforce and they often see towns as a great place to invest for that reason. You have a loyal, willing workforce, but we've got to invest in the skills of that workforce. But the vision of Wigan as pure commuter town, high skilled or otherwise, is clearly not one that she shares. Well, that's the vision that a generation of leaders, national and regional, have seen for places like Wigan. And there's no question that being close to Manchester and Liverpool has helped us. Two thirds of my constituents travel out of Wigan every day for work. They travel to places like Salford, Bolton, Manchester, Liverpool, um, in order to get those opportunities. But the problem is that then... They go out after work, they spend money in Manchester, in Liverpool, they come back to Wigan, but they're not spending a lot of that money locally. For many of them, that commute takes its toll. The transport infrastructure is appalling. And so just getting into Manchester in the morning can take several hours at a time. The government is currently about to axe our main train link to the south side of Manchester where most people work. So for all the talk of levelling up, they're actually pulling the rug out from under our local economy. And the problem is that the model that you described just hasn't delivered on the things that most matter to people. It's not just about having jobs, it's about having a, a community life that stands right at the heart of our social scene and we haven't had that for quite some time it's been under strain it's been under attack for nandy there are reasons why we should be investing in new industries locally in towns like wigan rather than turning them into satellites of our biggest cities reasons linked to history and to community which stretch beyond cold hard economics when I think about Wigan, I think very much about the fact that we've got a legacy of engineering skills from the mining industry that still exist in Wigan, but they're not being used in engineering. They're being used to teach young people at our local college 
those skills themselves. But it's not Wigan's young people that are learning those for the large part. It's young people from across the Middle East who are working in the oil and gas industry who travel to Wigan in order to learn those skills. Why shouldn't our young people have that investment in them so that they can power us through the next century through clean energy like their parents and grandparents powered us through the last century through fossil fuels? It's important not just for the economic future of the town, but also because towns like Wigan, Barnsley, Aberdeenshire, these are places that within living memory did power the world. We didn't just have a contribution to make. We had a role, a stake, a purpose. And that is what has been lost over the last 40 years. And that's what we want back. What's clear is that the politics and the economics around towns are far more complex than the left-behind debate in Westminster might suggest. On its own, Boris Johnson's dollop of money here and a dollop of money there approach is unlikely to bridge the gap between the better and less well-off parts of the country. But guess what? Struggling towns can and do change, with or without the help of Westminster. I've not lived in Stockport for nigh on 20 years now, but where my brother and his mates live up on the north side of town, hipster bars and bottle shops are ten a penny these days. The old pubs in the town centre have been refurbished with wooden floorboards and exposed brickwork, well, some of them, at any rate. The market's been smartened up and now has a trendy food hall, and some lad my sister knows from school has opened a £75 a head tasting menu-only restaurant in a converted mill. It's fully booked for the next two months. Now, whether you think gentrification is entirely a good thing is a matter for a whole nother podcast. But either way, while Stockport is not quite New York City yet, the future for our towns is maybe not as set in stone as some would have you believe. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.